Take your Bibles, Matthew chapter 6. We are continuing our series on the Lord's Prayer. We began that last week, and it's online, and you can uh, listen. If you miss any of them, I'd encourage you to go online and, and listen to these as we kind of walk through this together. Many of us familiar with the Lord's Prayer and maybe grew up uh, reciting it, saying it, hearing it said, but this morning we're going to begin looking at the first part, and that's why much of the worship had to do with seeing about our Father, a good, good Father, because we're going to talk about God as our Father. And so uh, what I'd like to do uh, is, you don't have to stand up, but I would like for us to read together, it'll be on the screen, and read together the Lord's Prayer. And you just kind of, as best as I can, kind of follow me, don't get ahead, but uh, let's just read this together out loud, again, on the screen, and I have it intentionally from the New King James because the cadence is very similar to what most of us are familiar with. But let's just read it and say it out loud. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. 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 This morning we're going to look at verse 9, where Jesus said, This is how you should pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed or holy be your name. Verse 9, Matthew 6, verse 9 is what we're going to be looking at this morning. And where it says, our Father in heaven. Can you go back to verse 9 for me? There you go. Um, holy, hallowed is your name. That was the beginning. Remember Jesus, Luke gives us insight. The Lord's Prayer is in two different places, Matthew and Luke. And we talked about that last week. And in Luke, we get the context that the disciples asked Jesus specifically, teach us how to pray. I'm sure they heard Jesus pray many times. These were good Jewish boys. They knew how to recite prayers. Many of you know how to recite prayers. But they heard something in Jesus of relationship. Do you hear what I'm saying? A relationship. They were hearing Jesus talk to God the Father in a relationship. And as they heard that, they said, We want you to teach us to pray like that. We want, you to, uh, we want to pray where God, we have that relationship. And you know, Jesus, in talking about God as our Father, busted all the stereotypes of the Jews because the idea of calling upon God as their Father was seemed or deemed uh, somewhat disrespectful, that the hallowness of God's name was so great, even familiar with the... Uh, the English way that Yahweh is spelled where the vowels aren't in there, you'll see it oftentimes, Y-H-W-H, the name of God, Yahweh. And by not putting the vowels in there, because the Jews considered unworthy even to speak the very name of God. If scribes were writing um, you know, and copying uh, various scriptures or something, that if, uh, and again, the name of God, it wasn't just wadded up and thrown away, that the name of God was so sacred but it had become so sacred, and again, we kind of gone the opposite, 
but it was so sacred that it became the idea that God was detached from our lives, disconnected. And this morning, the title of the message this morning is Our Father, the God Connection. This is how, by relating and having our relationship with God as our Father, this is our connection. And uh, Jesus came to earth to reveal the Father. In the Old Testament, uh, I think some, you know, various versions, but roughly about seven times, uh, you only see it seven times that our, that God is referred to as Father in the Old Testament. But Jesus used the expression Father, relating, again, His relationship to God, uh, over 150 times. That shows you a big difference in emphasis of what Jesus... And in your uh, bulletin today, there's a listener's guide that I would encourage you to use. You'll be much more engaged in Scripture. And you have a little place there that I want to emphasize where it reminds us that God is a person and not a power. God is a person and not a power. What do I mean by that? Meaning that when we pray to God, we're not praying, may the force be with you. God, when I say person, meaning that God is a personality, that, that uh, we relate to Him the way we do a person. Now, I recognize we'll talk about it. He's not a person like us. But remember, God created man, humankind, in His own image, right? And a will and emotions and all those things that were characteristics of God. There's something called communicable attributes and non communicable attributes. For example, you've heard of communicable diseases? That means you can, things you can get. So we talk about the communicable attributes of God, love, mercy, joy. Those are things that we can participate in. But there's non-communicable attributes, all-powerful, all-omniscient, uh, meaning um, all-knowing, uh, omnipresent, everywhere at once. Those are things that are unique to God himself. But God has revealed Himself in His creation, and God created us in order for us to relate to Him. You even see that relationship in the garden with Adam, that God was present in relating and communicating with Adam because of sin that has been marred and lost in many ways. But the good news is that uh, when you understand it, is that we can have a relationship with God. And He is our Father. I can relate to Him. I can know Him. I can connect to Him. Now, let me just kind of say in a preface at the beginning here that for many people, the word Father is a negative term. For many people, Father brings up uh, all sorts of bad memories, bad connotations. A lot of people are saying, if you're saying God is like my father, no thanks. I don't want anything to do, I don't want anything to do with that. When we say our father in heaven, a lot of times, most, many, I should say, carry baggage of negativity in their own, because that's, you know, when we think about father, we obviously relate to our human father immediately because that's our, our frame of reference. And we take a lot of baggage growing up, consciously or unconsciously, and that's, I believe, one of the reasons that some people have, a difficult, have difficulty really relating 
to God as their father because we have that. For example, if you grew up with an unreasonable father, uh, you tend to think that God is always making unreasonable demands and expectations of your life. And you think, why even try? I couldn't please my earthly father. And if he's like my earthly father, why even try? I'll never please God. Or maybe you grew up with an uh, unreliable father, a father who made promises and broke them. Uh, you know, he said he would do this and never came through. Now, I had a, I had a good father. He wasn't perfect. But I had a good father, but, and, and I'm sure he made promises that he didn't keep, just like sometimes you want to keep the kids quiet, and you're like, all right, just, you know, you'll, you're ready to promise them anything. You know, you want a pony? Just be quiet, you know. Um, but I still remember, and I've had opportunity, I can, but I remember growing up, my dad was a golfer, and he said, when you get 12, I'm going to buy you one of those junior golf sets. Well, my parents divorced and went different ways, and that never happened. And to this day, if I go in Dick's Sporting Goods, whatever, and I see that junior golf set. No, I'm not, I'm not kidding you. The emotions come back. And let me tell you, there's, there's many times I said, I'm going to buy that golf set and I'm going to put it in my closet. And probably never use it, but just say, I got it. Now again, he wasn't, uh, that's not really meant to be a joke. I'm just saying that was something that was promised that here I am, 62 years old, and I still remember him saying that. Now, I don't think he did it out of spite or meanness, but it just didn't happen. God is not like that. Aren't you glad God keeps his word? He's reliable. How about an unconcerned father? You know, he was there. He provided. You never went hungry. You had a roof over your head, but he was just really kind of distant. You didn't really know him. You didn't have any connection with him. You didn't know what he liked. You didn't know anything about growing up. He was distant, cold, uninvolved, too busy to bother with you or to do simple things. How about the unpleasable father that you seem like nothing you ever did was good enough? Well, I believe that sometimes many bring that baggage into our understanding of God as our Father, because that's, again, our frame of reference. Today, I want to see and let God's Word counsel us and help us to overcome some of these misconceptions and problems we have, misconceptions that keep us disconnected from God. We want to see what the Bible tells us about God as our Father. And so, again, that listener's guide will be helpful. If you use it and follow it, just you can. there'll be things on the screen that'll be easy to follow. And this morning, I want to look at five characteristics of the fatherhood of God. God is our father. Number one, the Bible tells us that he is a caring father. We sing about God loves us. He really does. He loves us more than I think he can comprehend. In fact, to give you some maybe mental picture, the idea of trying to comprehend and understand the love of God, of the eternal creator of the universe, would be me standing over an anthill and then me trying to convince them of my love for those ants. I mean, it, the, the distance is so vast. And yet, that's the wonderful thing, as we'll discover and remind ourselves, is why God came, incarnated, came 
as in Jesus, was Jesus, God of very God, to reveal the Father. We'll talk about that. But, but God wouldn't exist if he didn't love you. I mean, you wouldn't exist. God certainly would exist. But, God, but we wouldn't exist if God did not love us. He is a caring Father. Psalm 103, verse 3 says, As a father has compassion, not just love, but compassion, on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him or honor him. God has compassion upon us. Sometimes our earthly father might not have had much compassion. You hurt yourself, and his response, well, just buck it up and you know, wipe your nose off, and come on, don't be a baby. You know, that was a parenting for many generations. God is a compassionate, loving father. I love the story told in the, uh, one of the Gospels, in the Gospel of Mark, and you remember the story, the followers of Jesus, the disciples, and they were out uh, fishing. Now, remember, these disciples, most every one of them were professional fishermen. And they were out uh, on the lake one day, and uh, Jesus got tired and curled up on one end of the boat and went to sleep, and a great storm came up. I don't know what category it was, but to these professional fishermen, I'm sure they were used to turbulent weather on the lake, but this must have been so great that they feared for their life. And as professionals, uh, they were scared. You know, I was telling Sean flying back on the airplane, I said, you know, I've learned that if I see the stewardesses or the stewards sitting down and putting their seatbelts on in the middle of the flight, (laughs) right? Because they can be serving you your peanuts and Dr. Pepper and rocking and rolling or whatever. But if I see them sitting down putting seatbelts, I just pull my seatbelt a little tighter. Like, okay, that's going to do a lot of good, but it makes me feel better, right? Kind of like when you were a kid in school, you put your head under your desk for a nuclear war, as if that was going to help you, right? Um, But these were professional fishermen, and the storm was so great, they woke up Jesus frantic over the impending loss of their own life. And Mark 4, 38 reads from the New Living Translation. It says that Jesus was sleeping at the back of the boat with his head on a cushion. The disciples woke him up shouting, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to drown? That's a profound statement. It's a statement we've made ourselves. God, don't you care? God, do you care? Do you care that I'm about to drown? Do you care I'm about to go under? God, do you care about the health report? God, have you seen what the doctor said? God, don't you care about my children? God, do you care that I've lost my job? God, do you care about these bills? My children struggling in school. God, do you care? And here's the answer you need to hear this morning is yes, God cares. He is a caring father. God does care. 1 Peter 5, 7. I think it's in your listener's guide. Cast all your anxiety on him or all your care upon him, the New King James says, for he cares for you. I would circle in your outline, he cares. It's interesting, that word cast or casting 
When I think about casting, I think of what? Casting a, a, a fisher, you know, a, a, a rod and reel, casting my line. But the word also, and I think this might be a better word, the word can also legitimately, legitimately be translated the word drop, D-R-O-P. Think about it. Cast, sometimes the weight is so heavy, God, I can't cast this. And God is saying, you don't need to throw it. You don't need to cast it. Just do what? Just drop it. Let gravity do its thing. Just drop it. And God says, just drop it. Just drop it. Just let go and let me handle it. I think that's a better picture for us to be reminded of. And notice it says, cast some of your cares upon him. No, I'd circle all. I'd put a big circle around all. Cast all your care or your anxiety upon him. Anything that's worth worrying about is worth giving to God. Jesus said in Matthew 6, when he was telling us, don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear. He says, your heavenly father, that's the caring heavenly father, knows that you need these things. He knows that you need food. He knows that you need shelter. He knows that you need clothing. Remember how he compared that if he knows uh, when the sparrow falls to the ground, if he cares for the flowers of the field, and he uses that as a, a comparison, how much more does he care for those in his image of his children? Listen, if you feel distant from God this morning, God is a loving, caring God. And just right now, just in the quietness of your own heart, you can pray, Lord Jesus, let me feel the care of the Father. Let me feel the care that, God, you care. Let me feel that presence of your caring in my life. Notice, secondly, he's not only a caring father, but he is a consistent father. I was kind of alluded to this earlier. That means he's consistent. He'll never let you down. You can, he can be counted on. He's dependable. He's reliable. He's worthy of trust. See, the only people you worry about are the people you don't trust, right? I don't worry about people I trust. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He doesn't change. The same God who made that Unconditional covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15 is the same God that makes the promises of His Word and His will. His Word is His will into our lives, and He can be counted on. He's reliable. He does not change. In theology, this is called the immutability of God. Immutability. It's an easy word, really, if you think about it. We know that when things mutate, that means they change. God does not mutate. He's immutable. He does not change. He does not alter his character, the immutability of God. Human fathers, including myself, are fickled, moody, right? Dads, sometimes we're not always consistent. Maybe you grew up with a dad, you never were sure when he was going to be silent or violent. Maybe you grew up with a dad, you never knew how he was going to react. Is he going to hug me or is he going to slug me? I never knew if he was going to take me in or reject me. Was he going to accept me 
or reprove me. Human fathers, even the best, are inconsistent. God is not like your human father. And sometimes that inconsistency leaves us very confused and very distrustful. But Jesus, or the Word of God says in 2 Timothy 2.13, it says, If we are faithless, He, God the Father, remains faithful. Friends, nothing on this planet lasts forever. I don't care what the United States Postal Service says. There is no such thing as a forever stamp. It will not last forever. God does not change. You know, it's interesting when you compare Christianity with even other religions. Instead of the picture of Scripture of God coming down to meet the needs of lost humanity, which you see consistently, whether it's Hinduism, Islam, or whatever else, is man appeasing a very moody God. Greek mythology is constantly the stories of appeasing the fickleness of these quote-unquote mythical gods. You know, whether it was sacrificing a virgin or following an eightfold path or these ten steps or whatever it is, or throwing, as they did to uh, Moloch in the Old Testament, throwing a baby into the fire, the fiery idol of Moloch. Um, uh, God is not like that. We don't have to appease him. Listen, Jesus atoned for our sins. Jesus met the demand of our sin. We come to him in Jesus, in faith in Jesus. Malachi 3.6 says, I, the Lord, do not change. In your outline, you see some Verses there from the Living Bible. God will never go back on His promises. 11.29, Psalm 59.10. My God is changeless in His love for me. He is caring and He is consistent. You might need to keep those verses handy when you begin to question and worry about God. It only reveals your distrust. And you have to be honest. My problem isn't so much about God. Maybe my problem is my perception of God as my father. Notice thirdly, he is a close father. He's not distant. He is not far away. One of the songs that was popular in the 90s that somehow occasionally found its way into uh, a church youth group by somebody who didn't know better was the song From a Distance. Wasn't it that Bette Midler Beaches song? You don't ask me why I know this. I, 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 don't, I couldn't tell you a Bette Midler movie, and certainly I don't even know if I ever watched the movie, but I remember that song, and the, the line is, uh, from a distance, God is watching. No, he's not from a distance. He's not just observing and watching chaos. No, God, John 1, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, literally pitched tent in our ghetto of sin. The God of every God came in Christ, not from a distance, He's watching us. No, He has intervened and come personally to be a part of the answer. He is the answer. He is not far away. Acts 17, 27, 
says, God did this. All the things he's done in history, Paul is saying. God did this so that people would reach out for him and find him since he is not far from each one of us. On Friday night, one of the last events that the team does in the, uh, with the Cups mission there is on the streets of Friday night where uh, there's certainly a lot of uh, activity, bars and restaurants, but there's also quite a bit of prostitutes on the street. And the team, uh, we went there, the men just basically stood back, but the ladies engaged. I think we had 45 of these uh, look like little cosmetic bags that had some personal hygiene items and, and I think, you know, a track, but there was some just some personal things in there. They had 45 of these bags. I think Mike bought them at the dollar store, took them down there. And, um, and so the ladies and the team, all of those 45 uh, little gift bags were given away probably within an hour. And that means 45 individual of prostitutes were prayed for, shared the gospel, ministered to, in just that quick, 45. And there probably was at least 40, 450 in that area. And certainly Westerners, I mean, uh, if you know anything about the Dominican Republic, it's become, unfortunately, one of the hubs of uh, human trafficking. And so again... Jesus came, that's where he came. He didn't come to the beautiful church up the hill. Where did he come? He came into the very slums of sin. And guess who lived there? We did. We did. We did. There but by the grace of God. He's not a million miles away. He's not from a distance. But when we begin to think of God in that distant way, maybe again because our father was distant. I was reading something Maybe a little dated, but I think it's still relevant that showed that since the 1970s until now, that because of two parent families, a lot of stresses, two jobs, two income families, a lot of stresses on the family that I'm sure we're all aware of personally, that the average family has parents spending 22 hours less with their children now since they did in the 70s. That we're there. But we're not there. We're there, but we're not close. We're not engaged, and we stick one of these in the kids' faces. You ever been walking an airport or a mall? And confess, I have done it too. And you about ran into a wall, or I've seen videos where somebody's looking at their phone and they topple over into the, the, the pool there in the middle of the mall, you know, because they're just, their faces are there. And they're not engaged. And how many times you go to a restaurant and see a family sitting around the table and every single one of them are doing this. And we wonder why we don't feel closeness to God because we don't know what that closeness is. And you know what we do in a negative way to try to gain closeness with God is we try to do something that's going to earn God's favor to be close to us. So in other words, we'll start becoming religious and think, okay, well, I'm gonna, I'll go to church because I know that God will love me more by me going to church. Or I'll start giving, or I'll start doing this, or I'll start doing that, or, or maybe I'll even go to church on Super Bowl Sunday, and that'll really, that'll really show God. 
you know, and the Bible calls that works. You can't earn a gift. A gift is a gift. You don't earn that. That's what the grace of God is. It is a gift of God. You cannot earn God's love. You cannot earn. Look at some of these things on your on the uh, back of your outline under heading number three. Look at some of these things. I'm going to say them quick. Is that because of God's uh, because of this nature and this character of God, God is never too busy for me. He doesn't. He always has time for me. We've all, Dad, said, "Not now. I'm busy." But sometimes that's become just a regular thing to say, "Not now. I'm busy," and we never have any time. Remember the Harry Chapin song, "Cats in the Cradle." Remember the line, "I can never not hear that and not feel a little prick." When that last line says, and my boy grew up just like me. God is never too busy. Psalm 145, 18, the Lord is near to all who call up on him. Notice also God loves, secondly, God loves to meet my needs. Where do you get that, Pastor? Matthew 7, 11, there in your outline. If you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who, what, ask Him. And thirdly, He is sympathetic to my hurt. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and He saves those who are crushed in spirit. You know, you can discipline a child and you can crush their spirit in the process. Do you understand what I mean by that? I remember doing teacher training and making sure teachers understood the difference between childishness and rebellion. Listen, don't let them be children. Let them be children. That's different. But you can crush somebody. You can crush their spirit. And many of you, under the guise of discipline, grew up with a crushed spirit that was demoralizing in your relationship to your father or whoever was the father in your life. And the the fact that God is sympathetic to my hurts just goes back to the fact that God is involved in our life. Dick, God is involved in in your journey right now, brother. God's there. God cares. It's not in your outline, and it won't be on the screen, but I remember in my Bible reading through the Bible in Genesis 31-2. Just make a note of it. Don't try to look at it. But it's when Jacob was being ripped off again by Laban, his father-in-law. If you know that story, you know, Jacob, he was a hustler. He was, you know, he had his issues, but he met his match with Laban. Right? You know, what goes around comes around sometimes. And Jacob is dispirited as he's praying before the Lord. And there's a verse in Genesis 31 2. I'm going to read it. You look up at, look at, it, at it later. But I remember when I read it, it was just one of those that just jumped out and touched my heart. And it just is something like this, or, or reads like this, where God said to Jacob, And and Jacob, of all the things that Laban was doing and reneging and lying and changing the rules and all this mess, the Lord said this to Jacob, quote, I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. Now, here's what 
It's God is saying, I see what's going on. You think God saw what was going on with Joseph in his life? God says, hey, I see what's going on. And I got it under control. It's all right. You just be faithful. You just be looking to me. I see what he's doing. I see what he's doing. I see what that boss is doing. I see what that person that promised the promise. I see, I, see I see what's going on. But you stay faithful to me. God cares. And God is sympathetic to my hurts. Notice, fourthly, he is a competent father. I had to get my C's in order, so let me explain that. God is a competent father, meaning there's not a problem God cannot handle. You ever know somebody that you hired to do a job and you realized they weren't competent? And you're like, oh no, they've already torn up the sidewalk and they don't know what they're doing. It's kind of like when I go into a Best Buy and ask them a question and immediately within a nanosecond I realize I know infinitely more then what they're, 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 they're just winging it, trying to tell me about something. I'm like, okay, just, all right, you know. I mean, I'm nice, but I, you just like, if you don't know, you don't know. God knows everything, and God is a competent father. There's no problem. There's nothing beyond his ability. There's nothing too hard for him. There's nothing beyond his resources. You say, sometimes I feel bad about going to God with my little problems. Let me tell you something. Here's a news flash. Everything to God is a little problem. Hello? Everything is a... And it's like God is saying, that's, that's the best you can bring me? Like, like, really? You think that's a big thing? You think that's something I can't... Everything... To God, I know it may not be to us, but everything to God is a little problem. Nothing is beyond his ability. God is a competent, able father. You know, in our culture, we've gone from father knows best to dad is a dummy. If you think about the portrayal of dads on television in the past 30, 40 years... We've gone from competent male father figures portrayed in the media to dads who are in the home that are idiots. Mom's the smartest one. The kids know more than mom and dad. And dad is the dunce. Dad is Homer Simpson. Dad is the family guy. Dad is Tim the tool time guy. It's Raymond. It's the king of queens. It's the king of the hill. It's dad is the incompetent dummy. And that's the way male human fathers are portrayed. Now, I realize the media is only a facade and doesn't always present reality. But if you go back to much television that many of you grew up with, the father figure generally was a respected, competent individual in the home, in the family. That has changed. And it changed along time ago. So why do we have this confused 
sense of what a father is today is certainly incompetent. Kind of as, as a humorous aside, it's like the kid who was at school and he was bragging to another little kid and said, my dad can beat up your dad. The other, dad, uh, the other kid said, big deal, so can my mom. <laughs> you know, my dad was a good guy. Everybody liked my dad. And growing up, I was uh, honored to have a good dad. Again, he wasn't perfect. But I grew up with the illusion that my dad knew everybody in town. And my dad could fix anything, knew everything. And then as I got older, I came to the conclusion that a lot of the stuff he was making up on the fly. And that he did, for example, I don't know why I remember this name. We had a sheriff down in Nueces County in Corpus Christi, Lee Handley. Just remember that name. And I remember Lee Handley, sheriff, as a little kid running for election. And my dad said, oh yeah, Lee's a good old boy, you know. And he'd talk like he knew the guy. He may have met him once at a rotary club. But he just, you know, and, and again, my dad, growing up, I thought my dad knew everything about everything. God knows it. My father, my heavenly father, as good as my dad was, he didn't know everything. But my heavenly father, he knows everything. And when you want to go to the expert, when you go to a doctor... You ever seen that commercial where the woman is getting ready to go on a, you know, a jump out of a plane, the parachute, and she said, you know, the guy hands her the parachute, and uh, she says, is it good to go? And he goes, kind of puts his fingers like this, like, you don't want that. You want to go, where do they say, this guy, you need to go see this guy, he's the best. Let me tell you something, he's not the best. Our father is the best. He's the great physician. And guess what? He has access 24-7, day or night, and he's willing to hear the needs. Ephesians 3.20 says, Now all glory to God who is able, through his mighty power at work within us, to accomplish infinitely more, more than we might ask or think. You may be doubting, that God can handle something. You may think it's too hard, it's too big, it's impossible. Do you hear that sound? Do you hear that sound? Do you hear that? That's God laughing. That's God laughing at you thinking something's too big or impossible. He's not laughing at you, but he's laughing at the idea that something's too big. It's all... Listen, God wrote the book, Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, because it's all small stuff. And that's why we can go to Him, great or small. Just like my children, I now have, as of the last two days, I have a child who is 30 and one who's 33. And you know what? On my phone, most of you I have blocked if I hit Do Not Disturbed. Just, but guess who... The three people I don't have blocked is my wife and my two boys. If they wanted to, and they know better, not even as a joke, they know better. And they would be prone to do stuff like that, even at grown men. 
It, they could call right now, even though I have it on do not disturb, they could call right now and it would come through. Why? Because they are my children. How much mas more does our heavenly father care about us? He's caring. He's close, consistent, competent. But let me not leave without looking at the latter part of verse nine. And this is he is a consecrated father. Consecrated means set apart. Look at the latter part of verse nine. Matthew six, nine. In this manner, therefore, pray our father in heaven, hallowed or holy be your name. It reminds us that even is, as he is our heavenly father, he is holy. He is to be reverence. He is consecrated. He is set apart. He became man in flesh, but he is other than us. And the most illustrated way to show this is from a passage I've preached. I know at least once here, I might have tried to sneak it in twice in nine years, but you probably would have caught me. But Isaiah chapter 6, and I would encourage you to, it'll be on the screen, but make sure, I don't think I have it in your notes, I don't remember. But it speaks about the holiness of God, that God is a holy God. He is our Father, but He's consecrated, He's holy, He's set apart. And I think sometimes, and I get, I get the, I get the uh, sentiment to some degree, where, I mean, even Jesus spoke about, Speaking about God, and we can call him Abba, Father. And that's very similar and close to how we might say Papa or Daddy. If you're raised in the South, as a grown man, I still called my father Daddy. That's just culturally wherever. But the point is, it's a very tender, intimate way. But that's much different than sometimes the flippant way of talking about the man upstairs. And sometimes the flippant way, you know, the Bible talks about in the Ten Commandments, do not take the Lord's uh, name in vain. And that's not, even though it includes putting his name before the word damn, which is kind of crazy. You're on a ladder and something happens and you want him to damn this. I don't, I w I don't want him to damn anything. Right? So don't, don't, don't curse yourself by something stupid like that, right? But it's, it's taking God's name in it and using it in an empty way. And I confess, sometimes, and me, it's still a habit I have to watch of just saying, God, God. And I remember another minister I served with called me out on that. I said, you're right, you're right. It's just a terrible habit that I don't realize I become subconscious of, of doing it. Room for grace. Amen? But look at Isaiah, or if you're from England, Isaiah, chapter 6. It, now, King Uzziah, King Uzziah came of, became king over Judah. The southern kingdom of Israel was separated. Judah, or Jerusalem was, at the age of 16 years of age. He reigned as king over Judah for 52 years. My grandparents remember Franklin Roosevelt serving for almost four terms. Doesn't happen anymore. They made a law, no more. 
But they remember him as a little child, and they were well into teenage, almost adult years, and Franklin Roosevelt was still the president. Imagine you grew up in 52 years, you knew no other king except Uzziah. 52 years he reigned. And when he died, the ground politically and emotionally in Judah fell out from under their feet because this was crisis. That's the context of what Isaiah is writing here in Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died. See, just that phrase. If you didn't know the significance of that, you just gloss right over it. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. In other words, you could say it this way. In the year that the world fell apart in my life, in the year that the earth fell out under my feet, in the year I thought everything was gone, I saw the Lord. And where was he? He wasn't God in your back pocket. He's not the God of the good parking place at Publix. He was, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train, that's the, that's the, 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 the robe, the length of the robe that would speak of the, the, the royalty and the majesty. You know, when the king in those, uh, what do you call the robes and that long train of that robe, that speaks of the majestic royalty. The train of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah is getting a vision here. And above him stood the seraphim, these angelic class of angels. Each had six wings. With two of the wings, they covered their face. They're before God, a very God. Even the angels cannot even glare and look upon the face of Yahweh. They covered their face. And with two, they covered their feet. Feet speaks of their creatureliness. What did God in that burning bush tell Moses? Take off your shoes. You are on what? The feet speaks of creature. They covered their creatureliness, their feet, in Arabic, Eastern countries, you ever see them take off their shoe when they pulled down that big statue of Saddam Hussein? You saw those men with their shoes beating the statue. Remember when George Bush was giving a press conference and somebody picked up their shoe in protest and threw it at him over in Iraq? Because the shoe, you don't sit in Arabic cultures and cross your feet where the bottom of your soles are seen. That's very offensive. The feet, creatureliness. And then it says, and with two, they flew. Verse 3. And one called to one another in this anthem, holy, holy, holy. I've talked about the repetition and the importance there. God is never seen as love, 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 mercy, mercy, mercy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of this threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. A picture of the, the fiery flame and presence of God. You see, this God who's consecrated, I end this by emphasizing that he is not in any 
shape, or form like your earthly father. And here's the point that I want you to remember. It'll be on the screen. We talk about the holiness of God. Our father is holy or consecrated. That means that we meet or relate to God as our Holy Father on His terms, not ours. Do you hear what I'm saying? We come before Him as our hallowed be thy name Father. We come to Him on His terms, not on ours. He's perfect in every way. He's consecrated. He's holiness. Everything, all the attributes, love, mercy, righteousness, patience, power, all those things flow from this essential attribute. You say, well, but that doesn't help me. How, how do you expect me to relate? I mean, everything you've been saying has been good, and now you're like pulling the rug out saying he's totally beyond. Let's keep reading, verse 5. And Isaiah said, as he is seeing this God and the angels and this magnificent vision. Isaiah said, Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord. It's capitalized, Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. Verse 6. And then one of the seraphim, one of those angels from the throne of God, flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal. Again, a picture of the, the fire, the whole Old Testament sacrificial system, all those pictures there. A burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. That tells me there's an altar. And verse 7 says that with that burning coal, he touched my mouth. Your lips are one of the most sensitive parts of your body. He touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. We know the Bible makes it clear that the ministry of Jesus, you see, the priest is literally a go-between, a mediator. The holiness of God was so separate, we needed one to go who had access before the Father to mediate sinfulness. And the only way that we could have access into the throne of God is if our, in the same picture, we were touched by a, the, the, the burning fire sent from heaven that have our sins atoned for do you remember Jesus said that a good man out of the treasure of his own heart bringing forth that which is good and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringing forth that which is evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The mouth represents and reveals the heart. The lips that were touched, that what Christ has done has taken that uh, the atonement that Christ bore and has burned away and has touched our hearts and what Ephesians 2.13, that our sins are atoned for, that we can now relate to this holy God. Ephesians 2.13 says, 
But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 18, for through Him, through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to what or who? The Father. How do we have access to this holy, consecrated Father? Only through Christ. In fact, Jesus made it very plain. John 14, 6. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one comes to me comes to the Father except through me. How do we enter into the presence of our consecrated, hallowed Father? We come freely through the blood of Christ because He, He has taken the coal from the fiery tongs of the altar and has atoned for our sins. We could never do. And because Jesus has provided access, we have access to the Father. You see, not everybody in the world, God is not everybody's Father. God created everybody. But He's not everybody's Father. Father implies what? Relationship. He's only the father to those who are in relationship to him. How do you get in relationship to him? Through Christ. No one comes to the father except through me. If my dad was still alive and you wanted to meet Richard Campbell, you wouldn't go stop a stranger on the street and say, hey, we want to we meet Rich, Richard Campbell. I don't even know who he is. Somebody might say, I don't know who he is, but why don't you go see his son? He can take you to his father. We come to the father through Christ. God is holy. God is righteous. John 1.18 from the New Living Translation says, No one has ever seen God, but the unique one, speaking of Christ, who is himself God, is near to the father's heart, and he, Jesus, has revealed God to us. Galatians 3.26, For you, speaking to believers, for you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. How do I ask and get God to be my Father? Is I ask Him to be my Father. Through Christ, I come and have relationship. And I can pray my Father, who are in heaven, holy is your name, Father. That's the kind of relationship that Jesus has come and to reveal. We wouldn't know God except through Christ and His revealing. This morning, I wonder how many of you struggle with knowing God as your Father. You may be saved and born again, been in church all your life. But you don't really have a relationship to God as a heavenly father. 
And when you pray that, you pray it with an emptiness, a lack of meaning. Because you just pray it and recite it the way you say the Pledge of Allegiance. There's no real thought or meaning. Instead of just taking time. And I challenge you this week, as you pray, as you talk, just stop there and meditate. I say meditate, I'm not talking about praying to your navel and crossing your legs. I'm just saying meditate is just a biblical way of stopping. You know, in the Psalms, when you'd read and you see that word, selah, selah, means take a break. Think about what you read. Read less, learn more. Take some selah moments. Think about what a wonderful heavenly father he is to us. Let's pray.